Thanks for the choice of that song. He will hold me fast. I need it now. Let's pray. Our Father, as we open your precious word, lift the scales from our eyes and the plugs from our ears that we might see and hear and understand and comprehend and put into practice the things that your word teaches us. Lord, just guide us now, we pray, in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs> when I was looking for a topic for today, I chose Doubting Thomas. And then I went to do some study on the subject and discovered that Thomas actually wasn't a doubter. Thomas was an unbeliever. So when we look at these two words, unbelief and doubt, the question is, is there a difference? And if there is a difference, is it important? So we look first at unbelief, and unbelief is the word that we will follow through with, but we'll start. Unbelief is a lack of faith. The word unbelief and the word faith in the Greek language come from the same root. And they're, they're shades of meaning, one of the other. It's a refusal to believe. And it's almost always, with only one exception, it's translated unbelief, unbeliever, or unbelieving. Now, we've prayed this morning for, for COVID, and we're, we've all become familiar with COVID. And one of the things that we hear is that some people are asymptomatic. That's symptomatic with an A on the front. And that A on the front means that they show no symptoms at all. The word unbelief is pistos. The word unbelief is apistos. Unbelief is everything that belief isn't. Just the same as asymptomatic is everything that symptomatic isn't. When it comes to doubt, doubt is a reasoning. Doubt is a questioning. It has many different words are used in our English translations. Sometimes it's doubt, but also it can also, it can also be thoughts, misgivings, wavering or disputing. But it doesn't have the strength and it doesn't have the seriousness of unbelief. Put the wrong one behind. Okay. So, staying with our title, Undoubting Thomas. And someone has said of unbelief, 
that it's the thief of God's greatest blessings. Now, what sort of a man was Thomas? He was one of the twelve. He was in the second group of twelve. Alexander McLaren, Dave quoted him last week. Alexander McLaren says this of Thomas, that he was no doubter, flat, frank, dogged disbelief and not hesitation or doubt was his attitude. If we want to look a little at just at this man, Thomas. So we'll go to John's Gospel. John's Gospel, chapter 11. And this is the account of the raising of Lazarus. But I just want to pick out a couple of verses here. Firstly in verse 7 and 8. This is Jesus speaking. Then after this he said to the disciples, to, to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and are you going there again? And then to verse 14. So, the, so Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. So Thomas was a man of courage. Then we go over to verse 14, to chapter 14. And verses 3 and 4, 3 to 6. Thomas 14, 3 to 6. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So Thomas was also an inquiring man. He wanted to know and he wasn't rebuked for his question. And his question brought out for us one of the great I am statements of, John, of the Gospel of John. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we go over to John chapter 24, following on with Thomas. John chapter 24. John chapter 20, verses 19 and 20 to begin with, and then and then 24 and 25. Okay. <clears throat> so then it was, e so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut 
when the disciples were, when the, when the doors were shut for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace to you. And, he, and when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So then we go to verse 24. To verse 24. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. This was a flat, blank statement. He was absent when the other disciples when Jesus appeared to the other disciples. And here's ten disciples, all, all of whom Jesus had shown his hands and his side. These ten disciples are all trying to convince Thomas that Jesus is alive. And he refuses under any circumstances to believe. He sets a, a presumptuous set of rules. He says, okay, you say you have seen his hands in his side. I'm saying if I can't put my finger in, if I can't put my hand in, I will not believe. And in the Greek, it's a strong double negative. I definitely will not believe. <clears throat> now, was Thomas unique in his unbelief. What about the other disciples? Luke 24, 11 tells us that the disciples, when Mary, when Mary Magdalene went to the disciples and brought them the news that Jesus was alive, he had told her to go and tell them that he was alive. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe. Other translations have folly or idle talk. The King James has idle tales. <clears throat> Mark chapter 16, verses 12 and 13, speaking about the two on the road to Emmaus. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. And the force of the original language is not even them did they believe. And in verse 14 of Mark 6, Jesus appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. So all 11 disciples, every one of them, suffered from this unbelief.
Now, this unbelief have, has a does unbelief have a consequence because it doesn't appear from our account of the disciples, other than the fact that they missed out on the joy of seeing him. Was that the only consequence? Is that the only consequence of unbelief? And the answer to that is no. If we go to the Gospel of Luke, to Luke chapter 1, and we look at the, the, the circumstances of the birth of John the Baptist. So Luke chapter 1, the virtually the whole chapter is taken up with the birth of John the Baptist. <clears throat> but we will only read some verses here and there to give the gist of the point we want to bring out. So verse, first of all, verses 5 to 7. In the days of Herod the king of Judea, there was a great, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And they were both advanced in years. And then to verse 11. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right hand of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. Then to verse 18. Zacharias said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife has advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall, not, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe the words which had been fulfilled in their proper time. And then to verse 59. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. John is now born. And they were, they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one, um, no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, his name is John. And they were all astonished. And at once his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he began to speak in praise of God. So the consequences were that he was struck dumb, deaf and dumb probably. The promise was given to him before Elizabeth conceived. 
she carried the babe for nine months. And then there was eight days before he was presented before the Lord and circumcised. So for the best part of a year, a priest, a servant in the temple was silent, unable to speak, resorting to sign language. Even for the eight days after the birth. He has prayed for this child, this son, all of his adult life. And God has answered his prayer and he can't go out and say, I'm a father. I've got a son. He's silent. And only after the, the eight days is he, once he has said or indicated that this son is to be called John. Only then is his tongue loosed. Only then is he able to speak. Now Zacharias was a godly man. He was righteous in the sight of God. He walked blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the law, of the Lord, this is no casual man. This is no Eli. This is a dedicated, committed servant of God. A man who had prayed faithfully and had that prayer answered. And this kind of indicates that anybody is capable of failing to grasp something that God has said and to believe it and to trust in it. So where does this come from? Where does this unbelief come from? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now this specifically speaks of those who reject Christ. But when it comes to unbelief, where's its source going to be? Unbelief is a sin. God does not sin. The only other source is the devil himself. And so this signifies to us how serious unbelief is. <clears throat> I mentioned before that there was one other word that was translated for unbelief and that word is incredible and some translations probably have unbelief but it's in Acts chapter 26 and verse 8 but we'll read We'll read from verse 6. Now, this is Paul standing before Agrippa. And now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night, night and day. 
and for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Now, what was Paul referring to? The promise made by God to our fathers. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 speaks of a resurrection. Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 19 speaks of a resurrection. But the most significant one is in the book of Ezekiel, in that familiar chapter 37 of the dry bones. And we'll just read some verses from there, verses 11 to 14. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore, pro therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I, am, I the Lord, have spoken and done this, declares the Lord. God had made a promise to the, to the race, to the people of Israel. God had made a promise that there was a resurrection to come. And yet when their Messiah came, they rejected him. When they, when they put him to death, they refused to believe that, that he was raised again from the dead. So the whole race of Israel suffered from this same unbelief. Remember the, the father who came to Jesus and his boy was demon-possessed and he kept falling into the fire and falling into water and he begged Jesus to, to heal him and Jesus said, if you have faith, if you believe and the man responded and he cried out and said I do believe help my unbelief if we are confronted with unbelief if there's something that you're having difficulty in understanding or, or accepting cry out to the Lord for his help There's an example of another example of the unbelief of the disciples in Matthew. It's a familiar, a familiar passage. It was the feeding of the 4,000. Now, prior to the feeding of the 4,000, there was the feeding of the 5,000. When Jesus miraculously fed something like 15,000 people, with five loaves and two fish. 
Now, you would sort of expect people to remember something like that happening because the disciples were involved in in handing out the food to these 15,000 people and how long would it have taken and how much impact should that have made on their minds. But we find in the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, where would we get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a crowd? What? Don't you remember? Don't you remember the feeding of the 5,000? How easy it is for us to forget God's blessings. And the next time the problem arises, we say, what are we going to do? Because we've forgotten God's blessing. We go back to John, (coughs) to the Gospel of John and the account of Thomas. John chapter 20, this time verses 26 to 29. After eight days his disciples were again inside and and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here your finger and see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving. But Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. So Thomas is present this time. And Jesus says, peace be with you. And then he invites Thomas to do the very thing that Thomas said he would have to do before he believed. Come and put your finger in here. Come and put your hand in here. There's no record that Thomas did that. The only record we have is what Thomas Thomas said. And I suggest that he fell at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And he said, my Lord and my God. The Greek order of words is the Lord of me and the God of me. He was testifying to the humanity and the deity of the Lord Jesus. And Thomas is the first disciple to call Jesus God. And just as his question in the previous reading brought forth the I am, this time another blessing, and it's a blessing for us, a special blessing for those who have not seen and have yet believed. It's the beatitude for us. It's the beatitude for those who trust and believe but haven't seen 
are waiting for that day when we stand before our Lord Jesus and we look at his hands and his side and we fall at his feet and say, my Lord and my God. What else do we know of Thomas? It's recorded that he travelled probably further than any other disciple. He travelled outside of the Roman Empire. He travelled, in fact, all the way to southwest India, to the area of Kerala. Probably further than any other disciple travelled. The most direct route is via the Persian Gulf, and it's a distance of around 5,000 kilometres. It's also believed that he went to China. But there are people today in southwest India who call themselves St. Thomas Christians. This man who didn't believe until he saw, when he did see, it made such a fine for month fundamental difference to him that he took the gospel probably further than any other man of his time. He was faithful. So the question is, so what? What does it mean for us? The good news is that many believers are steadfast and faithful like faithful Abraham and God, thank God for them. Thank God for those who always have a positive word and a positive encouragement. God bless them. But the Bible records men who were believers but who at some point refused to believe. Spurgeon has this warning. Unbelief does not assail our thoughts without withering our joys and impairing our energies. The question is, are we better than these ones that we have read about who showed unbelief when it came to the crunch? Do we, by our actions, display a lack of trust in God? Dare we say, this or that must be made plain to me or I will not accept a certain truth. If that becomes a habit, beware. Beware of it becoming a habit. Let us accept the promises in God's word. Let us stand upon them without wavering. Let us hold fast to our Lord Jesus and to our God. And finally, we'll just finish with this. It's a warning to Ahaz, king of Judah, from Isaiah. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. I'll repeat that. 
If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Let us pray. Our Father, we have asked for our ears to be opened. We have asked for our hearts to be receptive. We pray, loving Lord, that these words which are your words, they're not ours, they're yours. This is your precious word. May we stand on it. May we trust it. May we put it to the test and find that it's true. We commit our way to you today and for the coming days in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.